According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs 20, we've been looking at verses 6 and 7 and almost got through it last week. I want to tie together some final details there and then move on to verse 8. We can talk about politics. As verse 8 says, a king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. And uh, the blessings we have to, uh, to look at these things here. Before we get started though, this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithful provision. Father, that we live in a land of freedom, that we have a lampstand with open doors. Father, we thank you and praise you for hungry brothers and sisters that are obedient to your command, Father, as your word uh, mandates. We must uh, present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, we're here once again opening the scriptures, asking for you to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We do thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs chapter 20, uh, we've been looking at verses 6 and 7, which is really the um, short version and the male equivalent of Proverbs 31. You'll notice the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, very popular passage, very well known, I think, to uh, to the ladies here. Uh, but the question there about a virtuous woman who can find, and that question of who can find only appears twice in the scriptures. There in Proverbs 31, when a, when a young man is looking for a woman of excellence, and here in Proverbs 20, if there's a young woman out there looking for a man of loyalty, a man of chesed, the blessed loving kindness that we would call grace and truth, uh, a man of a man who proclaims his own loyalty. But who can find a faithful man, a trustworthy man? And this who can find question, like I say, it only appears here and in uh, Proverbs 31. A righteous man who walks in his integrity. And so verse 7 is a continuation from the poetry of verse 6. A righteous man who walks in his integrity. How blessed are his sons after him. How blessed. This is the Hebrew asherah that speaks of the happiness Uh, of the capacity to appreciate the blessings that God bestows. And so as we deal with it here, this is what we are currently looking at. This was point six in the outline. We start our outlines over with every new chapter, so we're pretty young into chapter 20 at this point. And it's uh, point six in the outline for chapter 20. Grace and truth were studied in chapter 19. We've already dealt with those issues of grace and truth, realizing that they are reflective of Jesus Christ personally. Uh, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. So we spent a lot of time in Proverbs 19 highlighting the issues of grace and truth. This is a very similar tandem, grace and, uh, and, uh, or loyalty. It's the same chesed that we had. Loyalty and faithfulness. 
loyalty and faithfulness. And this tandem is exhibited by the righteous man who walks in his integrity. So we really have four descriptions here. There's the chesed, there's the amun, there's the tzaddik, and then there's the tome for the integrity. And these are the principles that we look for. And you want this in a, in a father, you want this in a husband, you want this in a pastor, you want this in a political leader. I don't think it's accidental that we go here in verses 6 and 7 with a man of character and then uh, it follows it up there with verse 8 taking it right into the, the political realm. So this tandem of loyalty and faithfulness uh, it's exhibited by the righteous man who walks in his integrity. The who can find question appears only here and in Proverbs 31.10, which of course we're familiar with, the uh, woman of excellence, the woman of virtue. Uh, an excellent wife who can find her worth is far above jewels, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and it goes on. I'm looking forward to teaching that when we get to that. It is an acrostic poem that uh, takes you through the Hebrew alphabet from Aleph to Beth, Gimel, Daleth, all the way down. And so if you memorize this, or a little Hebrew girl that would memorize this, uh, had the, the blessings of being able to rehearse her alphabet, and uh, that's providing the, uh, the assistance there for memorization. And so the vocabulary on this from chesed to amun, as I've said before many times, chesed is probably my most favorite Hebrew word ever that speaks of uh, loving kindness, it speaks of grace and mercy, it speaks of faithfulness or loyalty. I think in this translation it's called loyalty. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, really many a man proclaims his own chesed. But a faith for, uh, but who can find a trustworthy man, the man of Amun. In other words, we're the same root that where we get our expression of amen, let it be true or may it be true or it is faithful. Whenever you give the amen to a statement, you are affirming its, its trustworthiness, that it is faithful and true. And so here we have the chesed and the amun and uh, the loving kindness and the faithful. And then the tzaddik for the righteous man, a righteous man who walks in his integrity. We understand, of course, that nobody is righteous in and of themselves. If you try to lift up your own righteousness, you're lifting up worthlessness. That all of our righteous deeds are as a filthy garment. And so there's no kind of human righteousness that we can lift up. And maybe we can impress ourselves, we can impress other people, because our human righteousness is a relative standard. And so maybe my human righteousness is better than the next guy's human righteousness. Who cares? We're, we're all sinners, and uh, the blessing is to be a sinner saved by grace so that we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to our account. That's the only way that anybody can declare a personal righteousness that has worthiness in the sight of God. And so when you talk about tzaddik, you're talking about a, an expression here, Strong's number is 6662. It occurs uh, really over 200 times in the Old Testament, including 66 times in Proverbs, and a remarkable concentration in chapters 10 through 13. That's really, if you want to focus on those chapters there, that's where you're going to see the concentration of righteousness because uh, 34 out of the 66 times that Sadiq can be found in the book of Proverbs, 34 of those 66 times is in those four chapters there, Proverbs 10 through 13. And then finally, Tome. All right, not Tom, but Tome. If you know somebody named Tom, that's a different thing. Tome, the Hebrew word, it's the word for integrity. And this is uh, characteristic of the, the man's lifestyle, characteristic of his life, uh, his 
family life, his business life, his public life, his, his spiritual life, every component of this man's life is characterized by his integrity. Uh, 23 times that you can find tome in the Old Testament, uh, including seven here within the book of Proverbs. And as we were running out of time last week, we went through these usages and we won't have to uh, repeat that here this morning. Really the last thing we didn't quite get to was the final expression in verse 7, Asherah, happy or blessed are his sons after him. And it's unfortunate, I think, that both in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament that, we, that the English Bible uses the expression blessed. And I think it's a legacy of the King James. I don't know that we would do it in the modern text if it wasn't for the legacy of the King James, who uh, because of the Beatitudes and because of other passages, blessed are uh, the meek, blessed are the merciful, Jesus uh, talking blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And since that's the rendering of the, of the King James, I think every English translation since then has been very reluctant to try to depart from that. Uh, but really you, I think you need to because blessedness uh, really conveys two separate really unrelated issues in the Hebrew and in the Greek. You have baraka, uh, like baraka church or the verb barak or like the, the personal Arabic name of Barack, like our president Barack Obama, that speaks of blessing. And it speaks of the transitive blessing of, of a Lord or a God or somebody that is providing a benefit for somebody else. And so God blesses us. We say God bless you. Or God bless America. Or God bless Israel. Or all these blessings, if, if, a, if a benefit is being bestowed, that's the verb barak. All right? Or eulagetos is in the, in the Greek. But the, the other term that so frequently comes to us as blessed and, and really it should be happy because it's a personal, emotional, it not, yeah it's emotional, it's a soul appreciation. And that's in the Hebrew it's asher. And, and remember uh, when uh, Jacob's wives were all having their competition for uh, you know having babies <laughs> and and, uh, and and even getting their their uh, handmaidens in on the act to try to have extra babies through the handmaidens. Anyway, a total of four women were are birthing these these twelve sons for Jacob, and the name Asher is is our memory device here because the name Asher means happy. And when Asher was born, his mother said, "How happy I am!" And and anyway, she named him Asher. So if you remember that Asher means happy. Uh, like Spike and Kay Asher here at Austin Bible Church. Asher means happy, and, that, and you can remember that. So these expressions, Asherah, where we translate blessed is the man, really should be happy is the man. And we have it again and again. Look how, um, let me just bring it up here real quickly. This is not really my main point here today, but in, in um, all this, uh, here we go. We'll go full screen with this. And uh, look at the, the Asherah usages throughout the, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament so that you get a sense for it. Here we go. And you'll notice, of course, um, bring it up here. Yeah, Psalm 1.1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, this is how, let's see, bring it up there. Yeah. 
Asherah, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And this refers to his personal happiness, the sole benefit that he receives by walking in the Word of God, living in the Word of God. And so it's a personal happiness. And it's not related to the fact that God is blessing him, Barak, but, I mean, they probably both happen at the same time, but it references his personal, subjective soul capacity to appreciate the goodness of God in his life. And uh, we have it here in Psalm 1, we have it in Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What's wrong with putting happy in both of those two verses? That's what it's saying. How happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? Are you happy to be saved? Of course you are. We all are. How happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit? I'm very happy that my iniquity was imputed to Jesus Christ, and it was judged by the Father as as Jesus was on the cross purchasing my redemption. And so we have happiness here in these passages. How about Psalm 119? How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How happy are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. And so uh, if, when, if and when, we, we joke about, when the Bolander Study Bible gets published someday, all of these Asherah verses are going to say happy. Going to be happy, happy, happy all the way through. Same thing with the Beatitudes that, that Jesus utters in Matthew 5. Happy are, happy are, happy are. And uh, that way we can clear up the distinctions between the Asherah blessedness and the Baraka blessedness. We don't want to confuse our Baraka with our Asherah. All right, well, enough of that. If you want more, we can, we can find more. There's 44 of these in the Hebrew Old Testament. And uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 119, Psalm 32, those are the easy ones to remember and jump out at me. Um, Psalm 34, 8 would be another one. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. All right, many more of those. But now speaking of happiness, we have happy children. And what makes a happy child? Don't we want our children to be happy? Well, we don't want them to be spoiled brats. We want them to be happy with God's definition of happiness. Not the world's definition, not the uh, carnal flesh's definition. You You can please the flesh and that produces something that sometimes is called happiness. But, uh, but the, the, the pleasure of the sin nature is not biblical happiness. The happy blessedness, this is the heritage of this father's children. So this father we've been looking at in verses 6 and 7, this father that we've been spotlighting here, he's married, he's got a family, he's raising the next generation. Again, Proverbs 20, verses 6 and 7. He's a man of chesed, he's a man of amun, he's a man of tzaddik, he's a man of tom. And uh, this man is raising the next generation. And, and praise God for that because he's commanded to raise the next generation. And uh, those children growing up with a father like this are the happy children that Scripture describes in this capacity. It's happy blessedness. This is the heritage. And regardless regardless of how much money this man has, regardless of how much wealth he can pass on, regardless of the kind of house or, or, or tent or you know whatever, from a mansion to a shack, that whole spectrum of personal wealth 
is not in picture here because the heritage this son receives is the asherah, the happy blessedness of being brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so this is the heritage that, uh, that these children might expect. And, and I wanted to take some time, ran out of time last week, and I wanted to use today to, uh, to address some of this. Understand this is not um, an accident. This is a, a design. Genesis chapter 18, uh, when God talks to himself. Do you ever talk to yourself? That's, uh, that's Christ-like. Okay, Jesus did the same thing. Um, so relax, you know. And, and talking to yourself isn't bad. Answering yourself isn't bad. Until you start using different voices, then, then you maybe want to start to wonder about that. But in Genesis chapter 18, we have uh, the Lord, and he's approaching Sodom and Gomorrah. He's got two angels with him, and the three of them, as they're approaching, they're passing by Abraham's place. And uh, this is where uh, Abraham writes the hymn, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, do not pass me by. And he invites him in, they have dinner, and then they depart, and they're headed off to Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, anyway, in the context here, the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, this is where he's talking to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And these deliberations, the, the, the process that the Lord goes through in, in considering this is very interesting for us to learn from. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Essentially he's restating the Abrahamic covenant from chapter 12 and 13 and 15 and, and, and all through here. Abraham will become a great and mighty nation. This is the promise. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And on that basis, since Abraham is the patriarchal head of the Jewish people, and really the patriarchal head of the, of the uh, recipient of the Abrahamic covenant, with that blessing comes responsibility. And comes accountability. And comes a a degree of communication whereby God makes his will known. And God is not hiding from Abraham his, his will or his purpose in this regard. So shall I hide from Abraham? The answer is no, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm doing. Abraham is my regent. He is my steward on this earth. Why hide from my steward what I'm doing? I expect my steward to support what I'm doing and cooperate with what I'm doing. This is the Lord's thinking here on this. And then he says, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And if you notice, there's so much doctrine just packed into that one verse, but part and parcel with walking with the Lord is training up the next generation. Because we are generationally um, designed that a man leaves his father and mother when you have that breaking of the generation. You have that accountability from one generation to the next. And when a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh. And we now have a new generation that's going to pass it on to, to their children, to the next generation. And this is how it's designed biblically in any event that he may command his children and his household after him. Notice it's, it's, uh, 
That is a verb of command. It's a, it's a, it's a duty, it's a responsibility to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? Joshua could claim that for himself and his house. His wife, his children, his slaves, any servants, any additional. I mean the household would be a large, would be a large uh, unit. Abraham had uh, slaves, he had soldiers, he had uh, his own personal guard that went out and conducted uh, warfare operations, different things like that his children, and his household after him. And so this is the, uh, the heritage, and this is what we're designed to do. And this is, you know, a lot of times it gets boiled down to stupid things. It gets boiled down to um, secular interests, or it gets boiled down to earthly pursuits and different things about, you know, how a marriage works, or how a husband and wife uh, work together, and, and the role of the husband, and the role of the wife, and different things. And generally, those discussions devolve, sadly, away from the spiritual realm, and they they center on um, you know earthly stuff. You know who uh, who's the breadwinner, who brings home the bacon, who uh, you know all, all all this kind of stuff. Failing to realize that it's the image of God passing that image to the next generation, and and the woman was designed to be the man's helper, his helpmate in this duty in this work assignment. So we have the pattern that's there. How about Deuteronomy 6? Verses 6 and 7. So now if we get to Deuteronomy, what are we dealing with? Another generation has passed. That the Exodus generation has come out of Egypt, they've passed through the Red Sea, they've entered into the wilderness, but that Exodus generation rebels and that Exodus generation is judged. They will not enter the promised land. Only two human beings from that generation will enter the promised land. And so that generation dies in the wilderness. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then now it's the next generation. We call them the wilderness generation. We've got the exodus generation, the wilderness generation, then the conquest that follows. Anyway, when the next generation is stepping into their adult capacity, they have to be given the law that's why we get the name Deuteronomy. It's the giving of the law, the second giving of the law to the next generation. Anyway, Moses says, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You notice that's around the clock. That is all day, every day. That's, uh, that's not just on one day of the week when you throw us, uh, you know, nice clothes on them and you clean them up and you drag them to church and, and you force them to act all uh, nice and polite and clean. And then, uh, then you get home from church and they can be heathens for the rest of the week. That's not the design, all right? Nobody here, of course, does that, but I've, you know, read stories of other churches and other families. But these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. In other words, you internalize it, you personalize it. This is very real to you. This becomes to the core of who you are if this word is on your heart. And because it's the core of who you are, you now have to raise up the next generation so that it becomes the core of who they are. Teaching diligently and talking of them. So it's not, uh, is it the pastor's job? Is it the rabbi's job? Is it the priest's job? Who is it that instills spiritual values into your children? It's you. It's the parents. 
instilling these values in your children. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Anyway, there's more there, but that's Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. How about Psalm 78? Verses 1 through 8. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. So you see, how many generations are in just these verses? Because there's the people speaking, but they're talking about what they learned from their fathers, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children. Isn't that curious? Their children. There's, there's a, a, an ownership here. There's a, there's a um, connection between the generations that have preceded and the generations that have followed and the generation that maybe we never even get to meet on this earth because we're living and dying and departing. But the generation yet to come, we don't see them, but they're still our children. And we in our generation have to be passing this on. Tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. For He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded to our fathers that they should teach them to their children. So this is the heritage, this is the legacy. Now, the United States of America is not the theocracy of Israel. We have to make a, an adaptation. We have to have a secondary application, not a primary application. But nevertheless, we recognize as born-again believers in Jesus Christ what is our duty as salt and light in our community, in our state, in our nation. All right. That the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children. Look at that, the unborn in this verse. (laughs) Anyway, the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And sometimes there's a rough road and, and these things can be, can be tough. And, and, and the Bible doesn't hide that. The Bible doesn't hide that. In fact, in Ezekiel we go from uh, a faithful generation to a rotten generation to a faithful generation and it can, be, it can be back and forth like that from grandfather to son to grandson in, uh, in these things. In some respects uh, I think we observe that in our, in our applications. I think in a lot of respects, the, the Bible hints at it when it talks about the, uh, the wrath of God and, and the sins of the Father to the third and the fourth generation and the, the patience of God in, in uh, administering judgment on that basis but, and how that can be turned around when a generation gets saved. When a generation uh, gets saved and gets on doctrine and starts growing in the Word of God. See, and this is, uh, you know, and, and from... I'm not sure I can find a scripture that, that proves this or not, but it just seems that 
that first generation that gets saved, that had the heathen parents that didn't grow up with doctrine, that first generation has sometimes has a pretty rough go of it. And, uh, and that was my dad. That was my, my, uh, my dad's generation in that. Because before him was a bunch of unbelievers and Mormons and drunks and, and you know, whatnot. And then um, my dad was this little juvenile delinquent playing around in his front yard. And, and a dear, sweet, I, I think of her like an Ethel Dowd lady, a dear, sweet um, child evangelism fellowship neighborhood lady was walking by in the front yard there and said, why aren't you in Sunday school? <laughs> and my dad didn't even know what a Sunday school was. What are you talking about? And, and so her name was Mrs. Roth. And she said, well, go, let me talk to your mother. And, and grandma came out and, and uh, this, this total stranger said, uh, you know, I'm going to church this morning right up the road here. And you mind, I, you know, I could take your son with me to Sunday school. And, and can you imagine, would that kind of a thing happen today? A stranger walking by saying, I want to take your kid somewhere. And, uh, but thank God that, uh, that my grandmother said, please, <laughs> you know, he probably needs it, you know, it would help. And, uh, and so Mrs. Roth took, took him, little Bobby Bolander at five years old, took him to uh, Sunday school. And he got saved. And you know that, that sweet lady, I've never met her, she was with the Lord before I was born, but that sweet lady that, uh, that, that took him every Sunday, kept taking him, kept, and, and even to when he left home to go to college, she uh, made sure that he was solid on his doctrine. She was, she was a Bible-thumping Calvinist and she wanted to make sure because she thought that he was going to this Arminian school and might, might lose his faith or something. But um, anyway, that first generation um, you know, that's, 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 there can be some rough roads there. There can be some rocks on that road. But then what happens when they get married and they raise their kids? Now you've got second generation. Now you're training up a, a pack of kids and they're getting saved younger and they're being grounded at the younger ages. And they've got Christian parents as the examples in the home. Anyway, then you get to, the, and then thankfully my, my, me and my three siblings, all four of us are born again. And I rejoice in that. And then the next generation, all four of my children are born again. Anyway, I guess I'm uh, reflective and mopey today because my firstborn's having his birthday. This is the day we became parents of a postpartum child, I guess. Nine months of pregnancy, but he was birthed on this day. And uh, we learned about parenting pretty quickly after that. All right. What am I dealing with here? That's Psalm 78. And so you could have a a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart. But then that next generation, the grace of God steps in and somebody gets saved and look what happens. Look what happens. How about Proverbs 6? Twenty through 22. My son... Observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. And these pleas, they come over and over again in Proverbs 1-9. through The first nine chapters of Proverbs, you have a father and a mother just pleading with their son about the Word of God. Living it, making it real. And it's, uh, it's, it's marvelous when you consider that Solomon is communicating his childhood and the, the value that David and Bathsheba instilled into him knowing (laughs) 
that David and Bathsheba didn't exactly get their uh, relationship off in the biblical way, in the right way, and in the in, uh, it's not the way you want to start a marriage by adultery and murder and and uh, the loss of that firstborn. I mean, what a terrible start. And yet the grace of God gave Solomon as their next son and, and the, uh, the uh, instilling within him the Word of God. So do, uh, observe the commandment of your father, do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. This is the benefit that you have. And when the children are grounded and when the Word of God is real to them, first of all when they're saved and then when they're living in the Word of God, and that's where all their answers are going to come from. And, and parents, you're going to sleep a lot better at night. <laughs> you know, when, when the kids have flown the, flown the nest or the coop or whatever they fly, and, and you know that they're out there in this fallen world and yet the Word of God is going to sustain them. It's faithful and true. You can't follow them around all their lives, but the Word of God certainly does. <laughs> the Word of God uh, sits there in their soul and comes alive and blesses them. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. And when the Word of God comes alive, there's the, the benefit and the blessing there. Anyway, that's Proverbs chapter 6. How about Malachi 4.6? This is, uh, this is the last verse of the Old Testament. The last book, the last chapter, the last verse. Malachi 4.6. And you have a prophecy here what we would call a second advent prophecy of Jesus Christ. For behold the day is coming burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. Oh that it were today. <laughs> Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. I want that day coming. Uh, I'd love to see the arrogant and the evildoer burn like chaff. All right. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. What a day that's going to be. So do you want to be the burned and blown away chaff or do you want to be the skipping calf? I want to be the skipping calf. And we are. That's our position in Christ. All right. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing says the Lord of hosts. So there's judgment on the way and in that judgment Israel will be delivered and enter into their millennial kingdom. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And this expectation of Elijah, this is what they expected at the first advent. This is what they were expecting when John the Baptist arrived. And they said, wait a minute, are you Elijah? Who are you? And he says, well, I am, in a way, if you care to accept it, I am, but they didn't accept it. They rejected the Christ. And so John the Baptist is not Elijah who is to come. Elijah who is to come is still coming. Elijah who is to come will precede his second advent. The Jews still believe this. The Jews to this day are still waiting for Elijah. They leave an empty chair. They leave an empty place setting at their uh, Passover and the different uh, meals and events. And uh, this is the empty spot 
for Elijah for when he comes, and perhaps it'll be our home that he'll visit. And so you have the, the traditions there. But I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And you know what kind of ministry Elijah is going to have when he does come? See, some people think he's one of the two prophets from, from Revelation 11. I, don't, I used to think that. I don't think that's the case. I think he has a wholly separate ministry as the forerunner, as the herald. And primarily it's going to be with families and, and uh, their passion for the Word of God. Because it says here in verse 6, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This is going to be a real issue. It already is an issue, but, it, but you know, think about it in the tribulation. And, uh, and you think, well, doesn't Israel have bigger problems to worry about? You know, here's, here's Israel and they're surrounded by the Gentiles and, and Antichrist is ruling the world and there's all kinds of horrible things going on. And uh, when, you think, when you're thinking about the tribulation, here's how, this is the final verse of the Old Testament. It says your families are dysfunctional. Your fathers don't love their children and aren't instilling spiritual values in them. And the children don't love their parents and don't care to have the spiritual values instilled anyway. And so it's going both directions. The, the dysfunction is going both directions. And that has to stop. Parents have to instill spiritual truth to the next generation and that generation has to humbly receive it. So in the ministry of Elijah in the tribulation it says he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The Old Testament closes with the word curse. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, it's an important deal. And it's an important deal in any generation. But it's curious to me how that gets highlighted there for the coming tribulation, all right? And so we have that. How about New Testament, Ephesians 6, 4? You were looking at Hebrews, uh, or at uh, Ephesians 5, Sunday morning, where we were talking about subjection and how wives are to be in subjection to their husbands, how believers would be in subjection to one another, how church members would be uh, to obey and be in subjection to their pastors. That was in Hebrews 13, 17. So we were looking at subjection verses in, uh, in the Bible, and that includes here, this includes the imperative to obey, Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, not because God says so, because this is right. This is right. It is objectively righteous. And yes, God does say so. But it is because it is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. And uh, the damage that you do as a child that you carry into your adult capacity can be tremendous. But the benefit you can do as a child the humility that you foster as a child and the training that you receive as a child can, can bless you and benefit you for the rest of your days. And so this is the process whereby the parents bless the children with the, uh, the training in the Scriptures and the children having been blessed then proceed forward in that happiness, in that asherah happiness. So honor your father and mother. 
so that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The nurture and admonition. The discipline, instruction, and the admonishment. You can translate this in different ways, but here's the point. You know, the all of the... Uh, the traditions and the, and the cultural practices and so forth. The, the, the father has to teach his son a trade and give him a work skill and the mother has to teach her daughters the you know, sing the, watch uh, Fiddler on the Roof and, and that song that they sing about the papas and the mamas and the sons and the daughters and it's real early in the movie and it's that cultural tradition for the Jewish people and how they, how they uh, train up the next generation but all of that is secular, all that is temporal the spiritual priorities. This is the, the obligation, the command, regardless of whether the kid's going to be a carpenter or, or a milkman like Tevier or, or a, a poor tailor who deserves some happiness or, or anything, anything else that you have there. It's been a while since I've seen that. I need to watch that again. But the real issue here, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's priority number one. Whatever else they end up doing for, a, uh, for an occupation, for a career, for uh, whatever else they do in life, if they're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or Indian chief, or whatever else, they're going to be in the Word of God and they're going to stand in, in their own generation living the wisdom of the Word of God. And we can appreciate that. 1 Timothy 3. And uh, the passage here dealing with overseers and the character traits necessary for a man that would aspire to be the pastor of a church. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, a one-woman man. Translated there, the husband of one wife, but a one-woman man temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so this is a principle, and this is what, what uh, you evaluate and what uh, we consider when it comes to training up the next generation. Is he managing his own household well? Are the children in control or out of control? I was asking this morning, what, we get these hoodlums running the streets and tearing stuff down and breaking windows, and you wonder, you know, where, where are the parents? And uh, in some cases it's too late because there have been no parents for a long, long time. And uh, now they're adults running wild because they were children running wild before that. Keeping children under control with all dignity. Remember, command your household after you. Anyway, man does not know how to manage, how will he take care of the church of God? Down to verse 12, when he hit the deacons, likewise, must be one women men, husbands of one wife, good managers of their children and of their households. For those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so these are the principles here. Now of course the pastor's kids are not perfect and no deacon's kid is perfect and we're not uh, asking them to be sinless and perfect and, and so forth. 
But the fact of the matter, because every, every human's a sinner, <laughs> okay, and we get that. But when they are in defiance of the Word of God, they are also in defiance of their parents' expectations. Because this is going to be, this is a household that's going to be a Christian household. And we have biblical norms and standards, and these are our family policies, and these are our family expectations and standards. And uh, other families have different standards, but we have biblical standards. And so th- this is, uh, this is the, the governance, the management, the administration of this household that you, you can defy it, but it's going to be known that you're defying it because this is the standard that, that we uphold. And for better or for worse, it's a fishbowl and the, and the church sees it and that's, that's how these uh, PKs grow up. And God bless the, <laughs> God bless the, the pastor's kids. All right. So that's 1 Timothy 3, verses 4, 5, and 12. 2 Timothy 1, 5. You know, I'm still friends to this day. Facebook friends with my childhood pastor's kids. And uh, see them constantly, and they're always posting, and we, we chat back and forth about different things. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's a blessing. I'm, I'm thrilled to, uh, to be able to stay in touch with them and pray for them. And uh, goodness knows I heard enough stories about them growing up <laughs> from different things. So uh, anyway. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul writing to Timothy here. And he says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Now this is where Paul's getting ready to die. He's in prison again, and there won't be an earthly release this time. He is going to be executed, and he knows that. He's hoping that Timothy will rush to his location, but may not make it there in time. And uh, he may never see him this side of, of glory, but he hopes that he can. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and I'm sure that it is in you as well. And what a blessing and, and even in a mixed marriage and even in, an, in a divided house where uh, and we don't have any names here for the father and the grandfather we don't, it, it's not thought of that they were saved at all that uh, we know that his mother was Jewish his father was a Greek and there's no reference here to the faith of the fathers, the references to the faith of the mothers, the mother and the grandmother. And God bless mothers raining, raising kids when the husband is, is either absent or spiritually out of it or, or whatever else. And this is the case here. And so this childhood faith, this, this grounding when he was young, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. And you get over to chapter 3, He says in verse 14, you however continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. This is, a, this is kind of a depressing message here. Let me get to this. Talking about in the end time, I mean the whole chapter talks about realize this and the last days difficult times will come. That's how the chapter begins, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the description that follows is like right out of the modern newspaper here of things going on in our culture. And um, evil men and imposters going from bad to worse. Anyway, but you, in verse 10, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, 
persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch and at Lyconium and at Lystra. That was Timothy's hometown. That was his, that's where he grew up. And on the first missionary journey, Timothy was not mentioned by name as having been there. But this is a clue that he was there. He was there as a little boy. Not until the second missionary journey that he gets picked up, probably at the age of 10, 10 or 12, to follow Paul on, on that journey. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Understand what that is? Evil men and imposters. That is the phonies acting like they're good men. <laughs> there's the obviously evil men, and then there's the not so obviously evil men, because they're imposters. And they're faking it like they're the good guys. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And Paul's not taking credit saying you learned them from me. He's, Timothy's learned these from the Lord. The Lord has been his teacher, whether it was from Eunice or Lois or Paul or whoever. Timothy has learned from a variety of human sources, but every single time the teacher is God the Holy Spirit. We understand that. So the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood. You know, even even from the youngest of ages, even before they're saved, build those patterns, build those habits. We're a Christian family. We go to church on Sundays and they they learn and they, they learn from the nursery to the Sunday school to to being uh, around other Christian people so that uh, by the time they're old enough they reach the age of accountability and they start to put all these things together they have such an advantage and such a blessing and such a benefit and so it's from childhood I think this is the, the testimony here that tells me that I think Paul was saved in his childhood that it was the, the Damascus road is not when he passed from death into life the Damascus Road is when he got woken up out of his legalistic arrogance as a Pharisee and, and identified with the person of Jesus Christ to be ushered into the church age. But his actual born-again event was in his childhood, and we can prove that from Galatians. We, we saw that in Galatians chapter 1. Anyway, from childhood you have known the sacred writings. From childhood, ground them early, ground them young and you benefit them. Their heritage is happiness. Their heritage is the happy blessedness, the asherah, the happy blessedness heritage for children that are brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. All right. We move on to verse 8, we get political. The best kings sit on a throne of justice. Proverbs 20 and verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of justice. Now there's different kinds of thrones and a corrupt administration would be a throne of injustice. There's different kinds of thrones but a king of wisdom that understands his role as a servant of God will sit on a king of justice. In fact he becomes a type of of Jesus Christ and his promised kingdom. So point seven in the outline. The best king sits on a throne of justice. That's Proverbs 20, verse 8. Functioning in wisdom, 
he can rule with righteous judgment and be God's instrument for national blessing. And of course Solomon himself is going to famously illustrate this principle. He's going to rule with righteous judgment. He's going to have discernment. His eyes are going to see through the phoniness. Disperses all evil with his eyes. He sees through it. And maybe the evil disguises itself. And maybe the evil is telling lies. Maybe the evil is acting like it's good. But the king who sits on the throne of justice, he sees through that. He sifts through that. His eyes just blow it away. So we have uh, not only Proverbs 20 and verse 8, speaking of this, but the uh, down to verse 26, very clearly parallel. The same, same Proverbs, Proverbs 20. Look at how verse 26 parallels what we're seeing this morning in verse 8. A wise king winnows the wicked. Same verb. Winnowing, the same idea here in the eyes that disperse. Dispersing, winnowing, same activity. The wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. Now this is a lot of agricultural uh, metaphor that I don't relate to. I'm a city boy. I've always been, I've never really been on a farm uh, but the idea of, of threshing, if you're separating wheat from chaff, the idea of um, up on a hilltop and throwing it up in the air so that the wind can carry the chaff away and then the heavier wheat falls back down to the ground, falls back at your feet, and this is the, the sifting process. And uh, anyway, as I understand it, that's what I've read, and now you know what I know. But the, uh, the winnowing process... Usually there's wind involved and sometimes there's, there's other uh, things that happen. Fire for, the, uh, for the, uh, the chaff. Anyway, and then there's the grinding wheel, the threshing wheel or the grinding wheel. Because once you have pure wheat, once you've removed the chaff from the wheat, what do you do with a pile of pure wheat just sitting there at your feet? Well, then you grind it. And after you grind it, you bake it. That sounds like painful. <laughs> that sounds like, uh, I mean, I don't want to be ground. I don't want to be baked. Well, that's the process. Okay, where do you think bread comes from? There's a, there's a process. And uh, anyway, all of this serves to illustrate. And thank God for it. Thank God that He sifts us. Thank God that He grinds us. Thank God that He bakes us. Thanks God that, it, that this is part of how we grow. Anyway, functioning in wisdom. So we have the tandem here of judging and wisdom. In verse 8, he's sitting on the throne of justice, dispersing all evil with his eyes. So there's judgment in that. And then in verse 26, he's the wise king that winnows the wicked. Same verb in verse 8 and in verse 26. So functioning in wisdom, he can rule with righteous judgment. We actually dealt with this back in chapter 16 in a long stretch of verses, verses 10 through 15. Before I run out of time, let's look at this. Remember this? How long ago was chapter 16? That was a while ago. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. He's speaking on behalf of God. He's in his office because God put him there. And when he issues a decree... 
It's as if God himself is speaking because God put that man on that throne. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord and the weights of the bag are his concern. And so God expects his politicians to, uh, to be uh, fair in their, in their uh, judicial rulings, to be fair in their business dealings, in their economic dealings, not to have uh, crooked scales, not to have um, uh, unequal weights. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. So here's a king that represents God, and if he abuses that, if he abuses his office, if he's a wicked king serving Satan instead of the Lord, that's an abomination. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. The fury of a king is like a messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. Remember all this? We get six verses here in Psalm, in Proverbs 16 dealing with politics. In the light of a king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with a spring rain. Anyway, Proverbs 16, verses 10 through 15. The blessings of a king that's walking in wisdom, that understands his role as a servant of God. We get to that in Romans 13, 4. Government is a servant of God. And when a politician realizes that, when a politician, I mean, the arrogant ones think that the people serve them. The humble ones know that they serve the people. And that's, that's all the difference in the world. And then beyond serving people, the biblical ones know that they're serving the Lord. They know that, uh, that they are in office by the grace of God to do His will, to, to achieve His pleasure. This is why we pray for our leaders and why I'm so thankful that the, the, the Zoom session I had a month or two ago with, with uh, Governor Abbott he came right out and said this. He said that he is a servant in God's hands. That God has made him the governor of Texas. And he needs to be humble before the Lord to execute his duties appropriately. And that was as biblical as you can get. I'm happy to pray for him and pray with him in, uh, in those sessions. Alright, we'll, we'll pick up on this uh, next week. We'll talk about national blessing. And of course, if we have a wicked king, God put him there too. Sometimes God puts the wicked king in office to discipline his people. So that his people will groan. And uh, there's a corrective value in that when God allows the, the wicked to rule. We don't like it, but God uses that to wake us up. And uh, we have the issues there. Anyway, Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for the blessing we have to train up the next generation. And Father, it is a joy. It is a joy to see, uh, and we've had it here at Austin Bible Church, we've had uh, great-grandparents and grandparents and parents and children four and even five generations. Uh, Father, what a, what a joy. And uh, just thank you for being faithful. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.